Come on back in. Have a seat. If you're watching online, I want to welcome you to our service and the sermon this morning. My name is Mark Mullery. If we haven't met yet, look forward to meeting you if you're here or watching for the first time. Greetings and welcome. I get to serve as one of the elders here in our church, and I get to bring the sermon this morning. We're in week three of eight in a series in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. The series is called Origins. It's about learning how to live life in God's world, and uh, these are there's just massive uh, topics that, that, that come up in these chapters, um, and so we're not going to be able to cover everything that we want to in, uh, in, in the sermons. There are going to be some midweek musings coming that will uh, have some sort of follow-up information. I want to make sure that everybody knows uh, the topic of work is going to come up this morning, and at the end of this month, Saturday, April 30th, we're going to have a seminar from 9 to 12 in the morning downstairs about work. We'll have some panelists from the church. We'll have a couple of short messages about work. Uh, so there's going to be lots of follow-up available on that. And then we're going to have some follow-up messages on things like shame and gender and sexuality and some of the things that, that come up in uh, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. This morning, we are in Genesis 2. Uh, we're in Genesis 2, 4 to 25, and Sarah Hinkle is going to read this passage for us. So please tune your ears, the ears of your heart, to hear God's word. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant in the, of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of, the, east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day of that, that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for, for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the garden the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, 
This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. God, we quiet our hearts before you, our maker and redeemer. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to behold wonderful things in your law. We pray that you would shape our lives and our church by your word and by this word in Genesis 2 send us into this world as ambassadors with good news, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Genesis is the book of beginnings. And we've seen, if you've been here for the last couple of messages, we've seen in chapter one how God created the heavens and the earth, and he made man, male and female, in his image. To be in God's image means at least this. It means at least that we as human beings reflect God and represent God in the world. Now chapter two begins to build on what happens in chapter one by giving us a more intimate description of the creation of man and woman in paradise. This passage, what you have just heard, what you have in front of you, and I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open or on or whatever uh, uh, in, in front of you during this message, this chapter addresses the most basic and vital questions of life. People who think, well, the, the Bible's irrelevant, it's boring. The Bible speaks to the most pressing, vital questions of life. Who are we? Why are we here? What does it mean to be human? And Genesis 2, what you have in front of you here is really, this is our origin story as human beings. I understand if you like... Uh, Marvel stories and, and superheroes, uh, there's origin stories about Batman or Iron Man. I want to tell you the origin story from the book The Hobbit of Gollum. If you've read the book The Hobbit, you know that Gollum is this slimy, sneaky creature who's lost his ring. Now Bilbo, the Hobbit, finds this ring and he wins it from Gollum by way of riddle. Reading further in, the, in, in a later book, The Lord of the Rings, we discovered that Gollum wasn't always slimy and sneaky. He was once named Smeagol, and he too was a hobbit. On his birthday, Smeagol and his friend Deagle went fishing. Deagle got pulled into the water by a big fish, and while he's in the water, he finds this gold ring. When Smeagol sees the ring, he comes under its power and he ends up killing Deagle to get the ring. And thus begins the descent of Smeagol to become Gollum. Gollum is a fallen hobbit, ruined by lust for a gold ring. But he didn't start out that way. And there's always this question in the Lord of the Rings. Can the good hobbit Smeagol come back or will he always be sneaky, slimy, murderous Gollum? See, understanding his origin helps you understand who he was intended to be and who he could possibly become again. 
And that's actually where we find ourselves today because there's a sense in which there's a golem, in, a bit of golem in all of us and in our world. See, God's paradise, we see here in Genesis 2, has been ruined. It's been ruined by sin and it's changed each of us for the worst. So for example, we look for our identity and our sense of self, our sense of who we are in all the wrong places. We find our identity in our appearance, in how we look. We find our identity in our work, in our success, in our sexual orientation, in our gender. But none of these is sturdy enough to sustain us with a stable sense of identity because all of those things are inherently changeable or unstable. If we're, if we're to truly understand what it means to be human, we have to start before the fall. We have to start with our origins and that's where Genesis 2 takes us. So let's get these vital questions out in front of us. We're going to hold on to these questions as we go through Genesis 2 and then we're going to circle back to them at the end. Three vital questions. What does it mean to be a human being? What is our purpose? And how should we live? Now, let me just say, as an aside, what we're doing here isn't just for you. For me, this is for our kids and our grandkids. This is for people 10, 20, 30 years from now. These foundations in this community shape and inform us, not just for making changes and, and, and doing things that we might do today or next week, but for decades to come. This is formative, basic shaping material for who we are as people and as a congregation. So let's start here. We're going to take the text in just three steps. God creates man, he puts the man to work, and then God creates woman. So the, verses 4 to 14, God creates man. It opens, look back at the text with me, please. There's kind of this funny phrase. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. What's that all about? Well, if you read through Genesis, you find this phrase, these are the generations of... This occurs, this is the first of 10 occurrences in the book. And so this phrase becomes sort of an outline for the book. And each time this word generations is used, it's a word that in the Hebrew could mean account or record. And it introduces what follows. So it introduces sometimes a family tree. Or in this case, it introduces a record of events. And so what we get here in Genesis 2 is a record of events. Now, this isn't a second creation account as sort of an alternative to the first. This is actually kind of a zooming in on the creation of uh, man and woman that we saw briefly in verses 26, 27, and 28. God made human beings. God made man in his image. Male and female, he created them. And so we're going to get a, 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 a zooming in on, on, on that part of, of the creation. And so the first thing that we see here is that God makes a man. Verse 7, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. So here we see God. We want to continually keep asking ourselves, what do we learn about God? How does God reveal himself here in Genesis 1 and 2? And here we see God as, as a gardener creating out of the, 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 the dust of the earth or as a, as a, as a potter forming 
a human being and breathing life into him. If you haven't seen dirt lately, I've got a bucket of dirt here. This is what dirt looks like. So if you go, if you get on Ancestry.com and you work far enough back, <laughs> you get to a rib and then you get to this. This is you at the beginning, okay? So God creates human beings. This doesn't happen by accident. This is so important. We're not here by accident. We're not here by chance. We are here by design, by the intended design and will of the creating God. This man here, he'll be named Adam shortly. His word, the word man is the Hebrew word Adam. He's a real historical being. He's the first in the line of the human race. He isn't a myth. He didn't evolve. He's here by special creation and by design. When Luke writes his gospel, he traces Jesus' lineage back to Adam. When Jesus speaks about marriage, he affirms the, the uh, human beings, Adam and Eve, uh, as Jesus quotes this, this very chapter uh, in, in Matthew 19 and other places in the gospel. So this man is, as one scholar puts it, dignified dust. That's what we are as human beings, dignified dust. Adam, this first man, is an embodied soul. Now, think about this. If we're made in God's image, how, how does this work? Because God is spirit. God is invisible. God doesn't have a body. Yet we have bodies, so how can we be made in God's image if we don't, if he doesn't have a body and we do? Well, the, 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 the way this works is human beings need their bodies in order to express the attributes of God that we image. So as a human being, how do you express love? How do you express justice? How do you express wisdom? How do you work? You do all those things in your body, and so your body is the means by which you are able to image the invisible God. Our, so all this means that our bodies are essential to who we are as humans. We can't be truly human without our bodies. Our goal isn't to escape our bodies and ascend to some higher plane. Our, our, our goal is to live in recreated bodies that won't be affected by sickness and sin and death. More to say on these things in a couple of weeks. But we live because God breathes the breath of life into us. It reminds me of the sermon you may remember this if you were here. Kenneth preached a few weeks ago from John chapter 20. And after the resurrection, you remember what Jesus did? He breathed on his disciples. Sound familiar? And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And so the same God who makes us alive with his breath puts his spirit in us to make us alive in Christ. That's the God we're seeing front of us here in Genesis 2. And so he then, after he makes a man, he plants a garden. It says, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Again, think about the character of God that's coming into view here. Here's, here's God the artist. Here's God the provider. Every tree that is pleasant to the sight 
and good for food. God is, is saying, come enjoy all that I've made. And then we get this mention of these two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. More to come on that. But I want you to see that in chapter 2, we have the same kind of movement that we saw in chapter 1. We're moving from empty to full, from lifeless to living. And we have this river flowing through here with these, these four rivers giving this sense of, of, of this, this, this garden teeming with life. So what happens next? Well, look at verse 15 with me, please. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. I love that phrase. The first thing that Adam is commissioned with by God is to get to work. He's got something to do. Work it and keep it. Now, you got to think about what's going on here because Eden isn't like one of those all-inclusive resorts, you know, where everything's handed to you while you sit around getting tan and overweight. There's actually work to do in the garden. This man is a prototype for all human beings. He's representing all people at this point, and he's being called, as we saw in chapter 1, to have dominion over the earth to bring order and shape and fullness and life into creation. Work it and keep it. God is a worker. And now he's making human beings to work in his image, after his likeness. Work, hear this, this may surprise you. Work is part of God's blessing. Work is part of the very good of creation. Your work experience may not always be like that. It certainly isn't always like that because of what happens in chapter 3 in the thorns and thistles. But if you're going to understand work, you've got to start with chapter 2 in order to understand your experience as a worker. We get to go into our world representing God to work it and keep it. Cooking dinner. Solving a problem at work, planting flowers, changing the oil in your car. It's all part of working it and keeping it and representing God in the world. Now, there's a lot more to say about work, and I hope you can join us for that seminar on Saturday, April 30. The man is not only given a job to do. Look at verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden." But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. I want you to slow down and again, consider God. What do we learn about God here? What's the first command that Adam is given? You see that? He says, Adam, go and eat from every tree. It's all yours. Can you see the character of God here? Adam, that tree, and that tree, and that tree, and that tree, and everything in the whole garden, my word to you is yes, and yes, and yes, and enjoy, and enjoy, and enjoy. Is that the God you know? There's one prohibition. There's one no trespassing sign hanging around one tree in the garden and we'll come back to that tree in chapter three. 
God doesn't explain here why he must not eat from this tree, but he clearly does explain the consequences. The wages of sin is death. We'll learn in Romans 6. And here is a vital moment in our origin story. Who has the authority to tell you what's right and what's wrong? How do you decide what to do and what not to do? How do you decide how to live? Can you see that God is asserting himself here as king and ruler over humanity? I love the first picture in the Two Ways to Live booklet that you're going through in the RGCU class. Here's the the first of the six pictures in that Two Ways to Live booklet, which I think is such a great way to explain the gospel. Too often when uh, we get little booklets or, or ways to explain the gospel, it starts with a lot of assumptions about who God is and who you are. But this booklet starts in the right place. Here is a human being under God's authority on the earth. God's representative there on the earth, but under God's authority. And this is where we find the first man. God telling him how to live and and giving him the ethics of life in his kingdom. Hear this. We are not designed to determine morality by what the people around us are doing, by how we feel. We're designed to determine what's right and wrong by God's word to us. So why do we fight? Why do we demean one another? Why do we cheat? Why do we hurt people we love? Why do we tear people down with our words? We do this when we reject God's word to us and we move out from under his word and his commands to us and we live life on our own terms. And again, we'll see how that begins to play out in chapter three. And this is why we need a second man and a second garden. Here we see the first man in the first garden, put there to work it and keep it. But later we'll see another man in another garden, Jesus Christ in the garden of Gethsemane, wrestling in prayer as he prepares to die on a cross in order to reconcile wayward image bearers like us and bring us back, delivering us from the consequences of our rebellion and bringing us back under God's loving and saving authority. So we see the man in the garden. And then the third step here is God creates woman. Look at verse 18. Note what's happening here. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Here's the first not good in the garden. Here's the first not good in creation. It's not good for the man to be alone. You know what this means? This means human beings are made for community. Remember, this God who is speaking and creating is in his being triune. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is a relational community within himself. And so it seems to me that part of what it means to be made in God's image is to be relational. We are inherently intended to be relational beings and to live in community sustained by love because that's what God is like in himself. And so God says, what this man needs is a helper 
fit for him. I will make him a helper fit for him. The NIV says a suitable helper. Another translation says a complement for him. Now this word helper has been much discussed. It's the Hebrew word etzer, which means one who provides what's lacking. To be a helper, to be an etzer, is not to be demeaned. It's not a demeaning term. In fact, the word etzer is often used of how God relates to his people. Psalm 33:20. our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help, etzer, and our shield. So to be an etzer is not to be a second class person. So God solves the problem of man's aloneness by putting him to sleep, deep sleep, He removes a rib and he creates a woman out of it. I love what Matthew Henry, the old commentator, wrote about this passage. He says, the woman is not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. And when Adam wakes up, and discovers this woman, he sings this happy song. This may not be a very exciting and romantic song to us here, but I expect in the day it was quite the celebration and she was probably encouraged by it, I assume. Adam is saying, finally, someone like me, not the zebras, not the mice, not the redwood trees, no, but here is someone like me, a companion, equal in value, equal in personhood, equal in the image of God, but not a clone. No, we have a man and a woman who will complement each other in mutually enriching ways. And this sets up the fireworks, sort of the grand finale of the last two verses of this passage and so much is packed into these last two verses. Please put your eyes there with me. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here in these two verses are five essential things to know about our origins. I'm going to just roll through them this morning without explaining and and, and working out the implications of of a a lot of these things. And as I do this, I want you to remember, we're seeing our origins in innocence. So each one of these things has been affected by the fall and affected by sin. And as we interact with these things, we find and experience the fallenness of, of, of living this side of uh, being east of Eden, this, this, this side of the fall. But Christ has come to begin to restore and repair what's broken and ruined, to begin to reverse that curse and to take us one day to a place where we will be in a new paradise and back in a state of, of, of innocence and purity that will even be uh, more profound because it will be permanent. Um, so so hear, that, hear these things with, with that in mind. The first thing we see here is we see marriage. We see marriage. 
marriage is this union that comes about. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so we see one man and one woman united for life. And so we also see, and this is vital, the marriage relationship becomes more primary than the parent-child relationship or than any other human relationship. The, the son leaves his father and mother in order to create this new family and be united to his wife. And so we see that marriage is first given not primarily for procreation, not primarily for pursuing increased wealth and business opportunities. No, it's, it's, what's it here for? It's a covenant of companionship. The foundation of marriage is companionship. Second, we see family coming into view. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. So obviously, this is a, a, a narrative comment. Moses is giving us this comment after the fact because at this point, Adam, the man, didn't have a father and mother. But here we find this sort of prototypical description of the way things will work. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And so we see the institution of family being founded right here. Family begins, families are designed to be parents and their children. The mother and father raise their son who leaves to marry a woman and start a new family. So family connections, family relationships are certainly wider than a husband, a wife, and if they have children, they're, they're children. But the basic unit and the basic building block for society is provided for us here. Now, as I say this, we don't live in Eden, do we? We don't live in paradise, do we? And I know that I'm speaking to a group where there are a number of single parents here. And this passage actually ought to elevate and increase our appreciation and respect for every single parent because you're trying to do the work of two as one person. And you have our respect and encouragement and appreciation. And we want this to be a place where you can find community and support in what you're doing. You are our heroes and we thank God for you. Community, third. Often, I think sometimes I've, I've read this passage and just thought about, well, okay, it wasn't good for the, this guy to be alone and so he gets a wife and, and, and that is certainly here. But there's more going on to it than this. We're finding out that the fundamental uh, not good about human beings is to be alone, which means to be made in the image of God is to be designed for community. It is not good for any of us to be alone. And the reality is the image of God is not restricted to married people Married people aren't more fulfilled than single people. Married people aren't more like God than single people. Remember, Jesus Christ came as a single person, fully in the image of God. No, this not good to be alone means you are made for community. And most importantly, now, the new community of the church with Christ as our king. Fourth, sex. Hey, we're going to talk about sex in church. We should because God does. Do you know that sex is actually God's idea? This is where it starts, right? Sex here is suggested both by this one flesh language and also by this naked and not ashamed idea. Listen, God's not embarrassed about sex. He invented it. He started it. And he designed it to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife. It's a great gift to be enjoyed in a particular setting within particular boundaries. 
And finally, shame. Look back at verse 25. This is, I, would, I was going to say this is hard to imagine. In some ways, this is impossible for me. to. I can't grasp this. Hear what this says. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In other words, shame, which is now a universal experience, every one of us experiences this shame, but shame, like guilt, wasn't always present in the human experience. Can you imagine what it would be like to be able to be utterly unguarded in everything, in every way, with people around you? I can't imagine. I'm constantly protecting myself, defending myself, realizing I'm doing that, trying not to do that. But we constantly do this with, with, with one another. Christ has come to restore our innocence and one day to bring us to a place where shame will be barred from the gates. And we're going to be back in a place like this. Not there yet, but in Christ we're on our way. We're going to unpack these things more in upcoming messages. We're going to focus on Easter and the resurrection. We'll be in 1 Corinthians 15 next week with this sweet connection, the man formed from the ground, the first Adam, and the second man from heaven, Christ. So that'll be 1 Corinthians 15 next week, and then we'll come back to Genesis for, for five more messages after that. We've been trying to look past Gollum to get to Smeagol. We've been trying to look scratch our way and scrape our way past and through and behind this sin-filled world to get a good look at our origins. We've asked three questions of massive importance. Let's see what we've accumulated and learned as we've gone through Genesis 2. First, what does it mean to be a human being? Well, God's word to us is this. It means to be created by God. It means to be created by God. Man and woman, male and female, made in God's image. That's the starting point. What's our purpose? Well, we see human purpose in sort of three directions in this passage. First, we are made to be in a relationship with God. Second, we are made to be stewards of the earth. Go into the earth and take dominion. Work it and keep it, male and female, all called to do that. And third, we are to be in community with one another. So relationship with God, stewardship of the earth, community with others. Finally, how should we live? Well, if we're going to be attentive to what we've seen here, we would say we, we're made to live under God's rule. Remember the picture. We're made to live under God's rule, and we're made to live by his word. We want to be a church and a community that lives under God's rule, shaped by God's word. We're to go into the world and work it and keep it. We're to go into this garden that we live in and be his representatives. We're to keep his commands. We're to live in fellowship with him. We're to where he leads us and makes it possible, marry and have children and certainly to live in the community of the church. As the Westminster Catechism puts so wonderfully summarizing what we see here. What is man's primary purpose? Man's primary purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I can't think of a better summary for Genesis 1 and 2 than that. This is why we're here, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now let me just pause here and say, 
I have found these two chapters over the 40 plus years of following Jesus to be precious beyond words. I can't tell you how formative they've been for me as a disciple and as a follower of Christ. What anchors they provide over and over in the storms of life and in the sea change of, of, of culture. I, I want to urge you, that these, these chapters, this is like the operating system for the Christian life. These need to be operational and functional, and I want to encourage you to return often to Genesis 1, Genesis 2, to see how God intended things to be, and Genesis 3 to understand where things went wrong and why they went wrong. These are so foundational for us. And again, these are foundations, not just for us, but for decades to come. And may this be a congregation under God's authority, fashioned by his word, that lives in the good of these things, no matter what's happening in the culture around us. Here is our origin story. And really the implications of what we find in these chapters will we'll take the rest of our lives to work out.